Hi, this is Rich Branson, Editor-in-Chief of Respiratory Care. Welcome to the Respiratory Care Editor's Commentary Podcast for October of 2020. The Editor's Choice paper is a comparison of vibrating mesh, jet, and breath-enhanced nebulizers during mechanical ventilation. Ashraf and colleagues used radio-labeled saline to evaluate inhaled mass and aerosol particle size with each device. Two nebulizers were placed on the dry side of the humidifier, while the breath-enhanced nebulizer was placed after the humidifier. The breath-enhanced nebulizer was less sensitive to the effects of humidification. The vibrating mesh nebulizer delivery was unpredictable due to failure to completely nebulize the solution in half of studies. This is the second time this has been reported in the journal. They conclude that breath-enhanced nebulizer technology ensured better control of drug delivery. In the accompanying editorial, Ariel Berlinski compares advantages and disadvantages of different nebulizers, arguing for improvements in technology and tailoring of devices for specific needs. Cooch and others describe the impact of intravenous pulmonary vasodilators on human bronchial epithelial cells in culture. This is a basic science study, a little bit unusual for respiratory care. They used a glycine or arginine diluent, both of which are alkaline preparations compared to a control. They found a reduction in ciliary beat frequency and increased cell death in the treatment groups. Ciliary beat frequency ceased immediately after exposure to the drug preparation. The authors concluded that in ventilated patients, these findings might result in important alterations in lung function. Rubin's accompanying editorial highlights the role of basic science in describing mechanistic effects but tempers the imports of these findings pending in vivo studies. It's important to understand that thousands of patients have been treated with aerosolized vasodilators and these findings haven't come to light as adverse events. Barassa et al. described the automated titration of low flow oxygen to subjects with COPD wearing a gas mask, perhaps a important study during the current times of COVID-19. They compared the oxygen flow requirement to maintain a set oxygen saturation in subjects exposed to hypoxic gas mixtures. Both healthy and COPD subjects required a range of oxygen flow between 0 and 2.9 liters a minute to maintain their SpO2. They found important reductions in the amount of oxygen delivered were obtained by the use of automated oxygen delivery and targeted SpO2. Casca and Herman provide comment on features and potential advantages of closed-loop oxygen systems for critical care. Moore and others describe the impact of nebulizer cleaning and drying on the potential for bacterial colonization in subjects with cystic fibrosis. They compared several variables related to assembly and disassembly, different cleaning solutions, and drying methods on the survival of Pseudomonas originosa. Complete nebulizer drying was essential for elimination of bacterial combination contamination of the devices. Moody et al. evaluated jet and vibrating mesh nebulizers to deliver bronchodilators to pediatric asthma subjects in the emergency department. Subjects were treated according to a protocol and the time to reach a mild asthma score, number of treatments and hospital admissions were recorded. Subjects treated with a mesh nebulizer required fewer treatments and achieved the desired reduction in asthma score more quickly. Alsuba performed a retrospective chart review of bronchodilator delivery via high-flow nasal cannula in pediatric subjects. They found an increase in heart rate during high-flow nasal cannula aerosol delivery versus traditional delivery methods with no difference in other measures. 
Bronchodilator delivery using high-flow nasal cannula was termed to be feasible at low gas flows, only two to four liters a minute. But high-flow nasal cannula did not improve subject's comfort and it increased respiratory therapist time at the bedside. In a cross-sectional observational trial, Okali et al. evaluated the impact of gender on inhaler technique. Subject sociodemographic characteristics, inhaler therapy, subject reported difficulties, and clinician reported errors in inhaler technique were recorded. Errors were common. Subject reported difficulties were more prevalent among women. A lack of training regarding inhaler technique predicted a higher likelihood of errors. Herrera, Cortina, and others evaluated the importance of sputum weight as a method for comparing the airway clearance interventions in subjects with bronchiectasis. They collected sputum expectorated over 24 hours on two separate days with and without airway clearance therapy. They also determined the minimal important difference in sputum production. They concluded that when sputum weight is used as an outcome, multiple measurements should be included. Holly and others evaluated post-deployment service members for isolated small airway dysfunction during exercise testing. Small airway dysfunction was analyzed for association to ventilation parameters at exercise. They found poor agreement across tests to, to detect small airway dysfunction. The addition of the small airway dysfunction test to lung function testing did not predict changes in the response to exercise. Ramirez and others performed a retrospective chart review in 30 mechanically ventilated subjects to determine adherence to oxygen to an oxygen therapy protocol. Subjects in the medical ICU placed on oxygen therapy protocol experience a significant delay in oxygen weaning. They suggest closer monitoring and adherence to the oxygen weaning protocol to reduce the potential negative effects of hyperoxia. In a similar but much larger study, Grimadal evaluated the changes in attitudes and practices of oxygen therapy following implementation of a conservative oxygen guideline. The author surveyed physicians before and after guideline initiation. After implementation, 5,840 subjects were admitted to three ICUs and over 101,000 blood gases were studied. Actual practice changed with overall lower oxygenation levels um, down to 77 millimeters of mercury versus 86 before the implementation, as well as a decrease in PEEP and FiO2. Nair and Smith evaluated a phase quality improvement intervention aimed at reducing unplanned extubation in the ICU. In a retrospective review, they report 7.2 unplanned extubations per 100 ventilator days. The quality improvement process included standardizing endotracheal tube fixation, monitoring of the fixation through routine checks, the use of two-person techniques for care of the patient, and importantly, adverse event reporting. Following the QI initiation, the rate of unplanned extubations fell to 1.4 per 100 ventilator days. Caria and coworkers performed a retrospective study of tidal volume setting in subjects with ARDS, stratifying groups based on body mass index. Over, over half of subjects were classified as obese, with a fifth of subjects meeting criteria for morbid obesity. Subjects in the morbid obesity group were three times as likely to receive a tidal volume greater than eight mLs per kilo on the first day of mechanical ventilation. And these patients were also found to require rescue therapies like inhaled nitric oxide, high frequency ventilation, or ECMO more frequently.
Metcus et al. used the National Inpatient Sample to evaluate non-invasive ventilation failure in subjects with acute heart failure. In nearly 280,000 subjects, NIV failure occurred in 1.5% of cases. Failure was associated with cardiogenic shock and cardiac arrest, resulting in a mortality rate of 26% in the NIV failure group versus 6% in those successfully treated. Um, this data is very interesting, but of course, um, cardiac arrest is not exactly amenable to treatment with non-invasive ventilation. Miller and others utilized a national database to evaluate pediatric intubations by respiratory therapists. The authors collected data regarding the reason for intubation, drugs used, number of attempts, and adverse events. Only 1% of first intubation attempts were made by respiratory therapists. They also found that respiratory therapists had success rates similar to other providers, but higher adverse event rates. Respiratory therapists were more likely to use video laryngoscopy than other disciplines. Adherence to CPAP therapy at home remains a major impediment for its use. Avellan, Hetaten, and colleagues evaluated subjects who had CPAP reinitiated following an initial failed CPAP trial. They found that subjects selected for a second trial had more severe sleep apnea compared to the control group of first time users. After one year, the naive subjects, the first time users, had a 67% rate of continued CPAP use versus only 52% for subjects on their second trial. CPAP acceptance was higher among men than women. Silva et al. evaluated the impact of early passive exercise with a cycloergometer on patient ventilator interaction. In a small group of heavily sedated subjects, 20 minutes of passive lay exercises were followed by 10 minutes of rest. Despite sedation, the asynchrony index increased significantly compared to at rest. The two most frequent asynchronies were missed triggers and flow asynchrony. It's important to note this is not active exercise by the participants, but passive exercise with a cycloergometer. Granchi and others evaluated the relationship of inhalation injury and dead space in predicting injury severity and outcome. In this retrospective review of 51 subjects, a modified dead space calculation found that dead space was significantly higher in non-survivors but the presence of pneumonia did not result in dead space differences. They concluded that dead space measures can be used to assess the severity of injury and prognosis. This is something that's been seen before in ARDS um, in studies by Rich Collet. She et al. provided a systematic review of radiographic bronchiectasis and COPD. They conclude that COPD bronchiectasis phenotype has adverse effects on subjects' prognosis. Shan et al. provide a systematic review of the use of NIV as a weaning strategy for hypoxemic respiratory failure. Using data from six trials, they noted that NIV as a weaning strategy did not decrease hospital mortality, but did reduce ICU length of stay and adverse events. Duerzo and others provide a narrative review on the variation in spirometry interpretation algorithms. And Lelouch and Laher pen a fascinating review on monitoring of subjects requiring oxygen therapy with an eye toward early warning scores. From the New Horizons Symposium, Christopher Neweth describes ventilator weaning in pediatrics, and Brian Walsh reviews the use of inhaled pulmonary vasodilators in the pediatric intensive care unit. Uh, we appreciate your, your subscription to the Respiratory Care podcast, and we encourage you to continue to be safe out there in these difficult times. Thank you. To receive the content of this and past issues of the journal, visit our website at www.rcjournal.com. 
There you can also subscribe to receive podcasts of future issues.